Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Evolving Engineering and Construction Brands podcast with your host, Matthew Winkelstein. I was super excited when this guest agreed to sit down with us. I've consumed his content for a while now, and I've watched him do a lot from a marketing standpoint. And he recently published a book, We Took the Risk, a book about the renewables industry, about his journey through it, but then also about the leaders and the characteristics and traits that make them fantastic leaders. And at the end, he has a call to action to all the renewables industry. This is the first episode that we broke into two parts. In hindsight, probably should have done that on previous episodes too, but this is the first one that we're trying it with because I just, I felt like it was a lot of information and I know people don't always have a long time to be able to sit down and listen to these before the next episode comes up. So I wanted to break this apart into two episodes. This episode is mainly about Tom, his story, his journey, the book that he authored, We Took the Risk, and the beginning parts of his journey through the renewable industry. Just a fantastic story. It was great to hear about his journey in the early days of the renewable space. Next week's episode, we get more into the marketing component of it, which I'm equally as excited about sharing with everyone because he has some great insights about how they grew brands in the renewable space. But this week, I wanted to focus on his story, his book, give it the proper due that it deserves. Before we get in the episode, I encourage you to check out the show notes, consider buying his book, follow Tom on social media. You won't regret it. He's a fantastic guy. Hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Tom, thanks for joining me today. If you would start us out, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role at EDPR and then we'll get into yeah. how you got into that position, how you get into renewables and also get into some of the fantastic content that's in your book. Fantastic. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me on here. It's so great, Matthew. And it's as always a pleasure to talk to you on a variety of topics. But today I'm really excited to talk to you more about renewables and where we're going as an industry and my newest book, We Took the Risk. A little background on me, I oversee and head North American Marketing for EDP Renewables, which is the fourth largest owner and operator of renewable energy assets here in the United States, as well as globally. We're also, as many of you know, we've come from a strong heritage of the wind sector. We were the original Horizon Wind team that was founded in the early 2000s by a gentleman named Mike Skelly, who is the founder and also CEO for those amount of years. And so we're very proud to be Texans. So we're based here in Houston. We have eight regional offices around the country. We're over 1,030 employees. And I think we're endemic of many of the developers in this sector, right? We went from being traditionally a wind player, and we're now across all technologies, including solar, storage, hydrogen, you name it. And I think what's really telling is many of us uh, who were these big wind developers now are going to start seeing operating assets being overtaken by solar, right? So our solar uh, assets will start to outnumber our wind assets, which I think is, is endemic of what's coming at us here in the future. Proud to be here, proud to be at EDP. It's been two years and, and growing and really proud of the work we've been doing, especially in the distributed generation sector, which is something also that we took on about two years ago as a company. I love talking about distributed generation because I feel like it's an under-discussed topic of how we're going to solve some of these issues. And when people talk about grid stability and they talk about mm -hmm. how can renewable support this. It's if you can create these little areas and pockets of sustainability and reliability, it's a lot easier than trying to fix the whole grid at once and saying, totally you're going to fix ERCOT, right? <laughs> That's a tougher it's, challenge. It's a tougher challenge. And it's all about resiliency and grid resiliency. And as we try to figure out here, how do we build up and invest in the transmission grid? DG just makes sense. And I think also when you look at ESG and influencers that are really helping a lot of the corporations move over to having 
a more greener energy supply. It just makes sense. We have so many of these warehouses. We have so many of these rooftops. No one has to see it. A lot of the NIMBY issues don't apply uh, to DG projects. And it's just a no-brainer with accessibility. Also, from a permitting signing perspective, tons easier than trying to permit inside a new wind farm or new solar facility in a rural area. So it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you're a student of the energy sector, it actually started out as distributed generation. And you wonder if that was the right decision to go more of this large central powerhouse. But that's a conversation for a different day. I think to you talk right now, people would think, you know, you completely grew up in the industry. You went to school to be an engineer. This is what you always wanted to do. And I have had the fortune of reading your book and know that's actually not true. So why don't you help our listeners understand how did you get started in the industry? What did that look like and what spawned that? Yeah, it's funny. So just like so many of us, right? I didn't know a lot about renewables. I did not come into an educational situation where I was getting a certificate or a degree with a renewable specialization, right? So I started like many of us really going off of my passion, which was in many ways, diplomacy and public relations. As many of you who know me well, I, I'm a talker. I like to know people's stories. I like to figure out what are the problems out there and through communications, distill those problems, right? And provide some solutions and answers to those problems. And went into a Georgetown undergrad, full foreign service to be a diplomat and really learned a lot there, both from a communications perspective, but also from a problem solving perspective. And graduated, then went on to work in that Whiting case thinking I was going to be a lawyer, doing international arbitration work, very quickly found out, you know what, love the topics, love the colleagues I had at Wayne Case, did not like being a lawyer, decided, let me look at my skill sets. And that began the journey, I think, towards renewable. So found out that I was a good writer, was good at pulling together press releases, was good at communicating value propositions, and went to grad school to work on that. And basically went to the University of Chicago, was working in their department on international relations, because I thought, okay, well, let me apply my global interests to my skill sets, and worked on a degree on international business development and started looking at energy gas pipelines in the central and the former Asian Russian republics, right in Central Asia. And this was before it was really cool. If this was today with (laughs) what we're talking about with Ukraine and everything, I would have had the best winning thesis. But back then it was something that, that, you know, we were talking about pipeline development, circumventing Russia right through Turkey through Azerbaijan. But yeah, did that and got a call from Edelman saying, hey, we'd love to have you join us. And, you know, would you be interested in starting out in the tech sector? So I actually got moved out to Silicon Valley and uh, was doing stuff there with Edelman on consumer tech. Learned a lot of my PR skill sets there that I needed that would still aid me today. And then the second bubble burst happened, right? And we all got laid off. And it's something all of us experienced in our early 20s out there in Silicon Valley in the early 2000s. And so I packed up my four boxes, moved back to, to, to New York, to home, but then found out, okay, where do I start my journey, right? So I moved back to DC. And lo and behold, it was while sleeping on a friend's floor that I got introduced to renewables by volunteering at a policy forum for uh, ACORF, the American Council on Renewable Energy, which back then was a two-person shop. And uh, walked into a room and really fell in love with the entrepreneurship, the energy, the ideas, really this concept of renewable energy and how it was not only providing us with the energy we needed, but doing so in a way that positively impacted the environment. So fell in love and we were an industry starving for skill sets and there weren't marketers out there, there weren't communications professionals. And, and my boss, I was very lucky, was like, listen, I can teach you renewables, but I can't teach you an attitude. I can't teach you a skill set. I can teach you about renewables though. And so I said, okay, sign me on. And that began the beginning of 12 years at ACOR and the beginning of my 18 years in renewable energy. That's awesome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what ACOR looks like today? Because when you yeah. were there, it was small, yeah. two-person. What is ACOR today? 
Yeah, no, when I started at I was employee number, it's a debate, number one or two. Jody Russell was the other Acor employee that started around <laughs> uh, the same time. And she actually was a college classmate of mine that told me about Acor. And she was actually housing me on her floor when I was looking for jobs back in DC, right? So it just shows you, again, tap into your network from day one. You never know where you'll show up, right? And yeah, Acor is very different. I think we had $250,000 in the bank, primarily research funding. Back then, even Mike Eckhart, who was the CEO and founder, was still volunteering his time. He was still working on his venture capital asset, uh, venture capital adventures, right? So it was just the three of us. And yeah, today, very different. A million dollar organization, nonprofit, staff of 30 plus. We went from, I remember when I joined, we had maybe 50, 60 members. I grew it up to 900 corporate members. I think Acor's around that number still today. Um, today, programming has really rebounded. I would say the newest program obviously is about EDI which is really important for our industry and workforce development in general for renewables. So the organization really has grown and the new team members that have come on board really have added to the foundations we gave it. And I think that's a lesson I learned very early on in your career. Do your best, give it 150% or realize there will come a time when you need to step aside and let somebody else come in to grow it out from there. And I was very lucky after 12 years to step aside and have a number of team members come in and really take it to where it is today. So I'm definitely thankful and, and very proud to see where Acor is today. I can imagine. I want to talk about the book here in detail, and then we'll get into some other questions. But it's always nice when we have a conversation and I've read the book and you're giving more information that's actually in the book. And we had talked offline. I had to yeah. cut so much out of that. It's yeah, I can't believe that first part of the story didn't make it into the book, but it's absolutely fantastic. And there's not many people that have been on the front lines of such monumentous change, right? I look at how you are on the front lines of growing Acor. Obviously, you're part of a team, but you're one of the first members of the team. And you were really a catalyst for that from a communications and persistence standpoint. You talk about that a little bit. And then also just the renewable sector in general has grown astronomically awesome. in that time period. 100%. And so you have such a unique perspective on that. But what prompted you to write a book about it? You know, I don't think that people yeah. always think about, hey, I should write a book about this. But if people have experience like yours, I think they aren't doing that experience justice if they aren't communicating it. What prompted you 100%. to actually write the book and communicate this information? 100% riffing off of that, Matthew, we're all responsible and accountable for the growth of our industry, right? We are here to make sure that we can facilitate a platform by which we can invite new people into this industry and give them the tools to succeed, right? So I feel that's an accountability that's spread across all of us. And that kind of fed into why I wrote this book, right? The book writing process, listen, I'm not an author. I'm not a writer. I'm actually a horrible writer. I claim that marketing has ruined me because I can do bylines. I can do ad copy, long form writing. It was a growing experience to say the least, but it happened because of two reasons. So we had COVID happening and we had this amazing opportunity where people were captive at home and they were craving human interaction. And it had been at that point, about 16 years into my career, um, I was transitioning from working in New York from the investment banking sector down here to, to Houston and working for ADPR and coming to the utility developer side of the business. And I was like, oh gosh, let me reflect on all these people who are mentors of mine and people who really impacted my career personally. Let me just connect with them. And what happened was I had missed the funeral of one of my mentors. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Bill Holmberg. And I missed his funeral and he deserved more for me. And I thought, you know what? Let me write an op-ed about his impact, specifically in the biomass and biofuels industry. Giving you a quick background, he worked with me at ACOR. Even at 80, he was running a mile or two miles every morning. He was just the America's, when you talk about the greatest generation, he was it. And he was dedicated to biomass and biofuels and growing up the industry. And in the early 70s, he was one of the lone voices out there talking about the potential of this industry. And many of the CEOs of the biomass and biofuels industries today 
were his interns. And he had an amazing network out there. And I think he's an, an aspirational person for us to aspire to just because he viewed every moment, a teaching moment for everybody around him, right? And that's what really got a lot of these executives at their starting points. I missed his funeral, felt horrible. And so I decided, let me write this op-ed, pitch the op-ed to buy Fuels Magazine and a couple others, and started interviewing a lot of these CEOs that were his interns at one point to talk about their growth, their stories, kind of where things went. And I was finding out all these stories. I'm like, God, I wish I knew this. And then it got me thinking, well, how many people coming to this industry really know all these stories? And also, frankly, how many of us that have been in this industry for 15 plus years know these stories, right? So that was going on. And then, funny enough, I got a phone call separately from a gentleman named Eric Crester, who's a professor who started up something called the Creator Institute at Georgetown University. His mission is to basically enable and empower a thousand new authors a year to really talk about their experiences. And he had been after me for three years. And I was always giving excuses saying, hey, I'm not a good writer. I just don't have time. And he's like, no, you have a story to tell. You should write a book. And funny enough, it's funny how fate happens. But as I was writing this piece for Bill Holmberg, Q. Eric Kester and his phone call, and he's, hey, you need to write a book. And it was just like a message from Bill (laughs) from above going, hey, you need to do this. And so I thought, you know what, let me just do it and expand it to really talk about not only build 25 to 35 other professionals and executives that really defined our industry and give it the backdrop of the history of the industry, the roller coaster that we all experienced, and really provide a book that is that kind of guide to anyone looking to enter the industry so they don't feel like they're a foreigner. It's a good icebreaker into renewables. But also for those of us who have been in the industry a long time, also give us that moment of reflection on just where we've come from and where we're going. There's a famous saying, if you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going. And this book provides that for so many of us who know these people firsthand, right? The other thing I appreciate about the book is the way you laid it out. So the way you laid out the book is focusing on those leaders. And I think that makes it digestible. It's very easy to circle back and look at, I want to learn more about this specific leader. Why did you decide to lay it out like that? Did that happen naturally? Or was it just, hey, I don't know how to organize all of these great people and this is the best way to do it. That's the thing. It happened because I had a very good developmental editor through this program, (laughs) the Creator Institute, right? It was almost like an MBA in writing. I was learning how to not only write, but also the business of writing, which was really Mm -hmm. phenomenal, really interesting. And so my developmental editor and I were going through it. And one of the things you have to do before you get greenlit for the project is the big idea. And so the question is, what is the big idea? And for us in renewables, the history of renewables, okay, we're interested because we're in the business. Are there people necessarily interested in a whole book on the history? No, not really. And I definitely did not want to do a self-help book because I'm like, there's so many of them out there. So working with the development editor, I'm like, what's the big, what's the big idea here? And my thesis is unlike any other industry, renewables entrepreneurs are built differently, right? We had to withstand pressures that other industries didn't have to withstand. And so at the end of the day, when we came together with my development editor and and with Eric Hester, we thought, okay, let's do a book that gives you a quick synopsis of the history in five phases, which I did with Michael Liebreich, which I was extremely thankful for to have that opportunity to collaborate with him on that section of the book. And then we went to traits. And what are the traits that really powered these individuals to achieve what they achieved in the industry and make their impact. And at the end of the day, this book is a call to action, both for those entering the industry to figure out, okay, these are the traits that are needed in order to succeed. And also for those of us that have been in the industry a long time, we're not out to pasture yet. This is an opportunity for us to get re-energized and create the impact we still can in the industry. So that's how it came together. So having the book divided up into three phases, right? The first phase being more about the history, the background, the second part of the book being about those traits and each of the chapters really being named by the trait that was self-identified by the executive. And then thirdly, the call to action, I think, and revisiting where we're going as an industry. I think the layout worked out really well. And honestly, the biggest challenge was I 
didn't want to talk about myself, right? And my development editors, listen, you weren't just a fly on the wall. You're in the room. You need to write about your perspective. So that that really helped a lot. And I think it's a message to all of us that in any of our daily work, remember, you're in the room. You're not a fly on the wall. So leave your impact. Give your side of the story and your side of the narrative. Yeah. It's awesome to hear how it came together. And you mentioned it multiple times, that moment to reflect. And so yeah. it's not a victory lap necessarily. It's not a, hey, we've made it. It's a, hey, look how far we've come. And then your call to action at the end is, but we're not done yet. We got to take the same energy. We got to carry this message forward. We have to carry the great work that people have come before us and continue to put in. We have to carry that forward if we want to build on this and not have it deteriorate. And that's an well, awesome takeaway. We all need that motivation, right? Even leaders, I constantly to our CEO here at EDPR North America, Sonia Ganavathi, I make it a point to tell her, hey, we're doing good work here. Let's celebrate this win, right? Because even executive leaders today, they need that motivation. You need to focus on a milestone, right? Define that milestone vis-a-vis -a, -vis a larger plan and know, hey, we're moving forward. And I think that kind of empowerment is needed more and more, especially as you manage uh, teams of millennials and others who come into this industry. Absolutely. And Gen Z now. They're going to be taking Gen over Z, for yeah. no time. <laughs> exactly. So what's the one takeaway before people pick up the book? What do you yeah. hope they take away from reading it? Number one, welcome to the renewables industry. We are needing talent. We're needing inspiration, right? In an age where many companies are being, and many folks are being told in companies, hey, be risk averse. Don't take a risk, right? Stay away from risk. My call to action is actually, no, we need the opposite. We need to be like these entrepreneurs. We need to take risks, not be scared to fail, and actually reinvest in renewable energy. We need new thinking. We need fresh thinking. Our challenges are endless, right? We have transmission challenges today. We're trying to figure out how to be more efficient. Storage is something that's growing out and out. So we need those engineers. We need that future workforce that in five years will take us to that next level, and we need to invest in that today. So the major message is take the risk, and that applies also to people who are in the industry. So we have the responsibility and accountability to be that vision of where we need to be in, in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Call to action, take the risk, and don't be afraid to do it. Love that. I think we can all apply that to multiple areas in our life too. When we become too risk adverse, it's uh, what are we really protecting? Because most people that have Agreed. achieved some measure of success didn't do it by avoiding risk. They did it by taking risk, but then you want to protect things you've built instead of taking the next risk that's necessary to move forward. Fantastic right. takeaway. We talked before, I love to support people that support me and support us. And just from an author standpoint, what I know about the book writing industry is there are better places for you to support you and your efforts. So I know people can buy it on Amazon. There's multiple places people can buy the book, but if people really want to support you, the author, where's the best place to purchase the book? Oh, gosh. Listen, I believe independent bookstores are the cornerstone. That's my statement. If you go to my website, my book website, and there's a QR code right next to me on this backslide. And obviously, my website's wetookthewrist.com. You'll see there's links to independent bookstores throughout the country that are carrying the book. And actually, any bookstore you go to, I've made a deal with InstaSpark to basically help um, any bookstore in the country be able to order it. So you can walk into any of your local bookstores and say, listen, I don't see it on the shelf, but I'd like to order it through you and they'll be able to order it. So I'd say support your independent bookstores. Obviously, for convenience, I am on Amazon. You can get it Prime in two days. I'm also at Barnes & Noble, and as well as Rakuten and Walmart. But I would say try to support the independent bookstores because those brick-and-mortar stores really depend on support like yours for books like mine. That will be my ask. But obviously, buy it on Amazon. And if you do, and if you love the book, please drop a review too. That really helps me out a lot.
as a marketer, and I know you're a marketer yourself, that is so on brand, right? Like independent yeah. bookstores. I should have known that was the answer, but I am going to support, go support a local bookstore and make another purchase to help them and help to continue your sales as well. So definitely way definitely. to stay on brand with how to purchase. I like that. Listen, it's amazing to have the strand in New York or Powell's in Portland, Oregon, or Blue Willow here in Houston, carry the book on their shelves. I had this aha moment. And then I also had this moment of fear going, oh God, I can't take the book back. It's out there. I can't take it back. But so far, it's been all positive reviews. And just I'm so supportive. I just sold the 2500th book, which an average author will sell in their lifetime, maybe 150 books. That's the average author, right? We're not talking about Oprah Winfrey or anybody like that. So to be able to make that milestone and also to get the feedback I've been getting. I was in the elevator this morning, someone at work bought the book and she's listen, I worked at Enron. And your piece on Enron in the book, fantastic. Thank you for telling that story. And so having those moments where people connect with you on the book, it's really special. It really is. And I'm very thankful and grateful for all the feedback I've gotten and definitely the feedback I'll keep on getting on the book. I can only imagine how surreal it is to be able to see your book on the shelf yeah. and then to be able to receive that positive feedback. Because, you know, I... I view things a lot in kind of phases, right? And just the act of deciding to write a book and actually writing it to me is a huge success. And more than 99.9% .9 of people make it. Everyone's yeah, got a book yeah. idea, right? I should do this. I should do that. And you said, Agreed. no, I'm going to do it. I have a full-time job. I have this great career that I'm continuing to grow. I have this mission, but on top of that, I'm also going to write a book. So congratulations on that on itself, but good to also hear the market success and people reflecting back to you that effort that you put into it. Now, the official stat is only 3% of people that start writing a book actually deliver on the book, which is just crazy. And then I think the other thing that really was significant for me was just the accessibility of people. And I think that's a theme in Renewable Energy is don't be afraid to reach out to mentors, to executives and other colleagues in the industry and say, hey, I would love to get mentored. I'd love to have a virtual coffee. And I was very fortunate that I got everyone that I reached out to, I reached out to 100 executives. All but one said, yes, let's do this. Let's talk. I was really lucky and fortunate to have the accessibility that I think is afforded to all of us. You just have to, again, take the risk, reach out and be shameless. You really do need to be shameless and because people will give you at least 15 minutes of their time. And I think that's a lesson for all of us is it never hurts to ask. Worst thing you will get is no, or maybe no, let's talk later though. So we're really lucky as an industry to have that inner support network that we need. Yeah. That's a perfect segue into some things I want to talk about in the book. And then I want to end on some just branding questions and get yeah. your perspective on that. But one of the things I picked up on in the beginning of the book is, and you mentioned it, your persistence. And then you yeah. also mentioned a story about your tolerance with people that had different ideas than you had. People that have a mission, sometimes they can get so focused on the mission that they aren't willing to work with people that have different ideas, even if it mm. is to achieve those same goals. Do you mind talking about how important persistence was and also yeah. how important tolerance was for you to help grow Acor to begin with and then ultimately end up at EDP? Listen, persistence is key to everything we do. And that applies not only to our daily work life, but also to our personal lives. And I think ACOR was that perfect test of persistence. We were starting up a trade association that was 53 across all renewables, which back then was unheard of. We had the traditional trade associations that were fighting for their segment of the pie, but really no one looking at all of the above. And also coming through with a clear message saying, hey, we're all renewables, we're for renewables against nothing, which automatically neutralized anybody in the oil and gas industry coming at us. And I think that was the smartest thing Mike Eckhart, who was the founder of Acor, did, was state we're for renewables against nothing. And that mentality right there was a very positive mentality that kind of disarmed everybody around us and really set the path for us talking about 
persisting and talking about what's our game plan in three pillars, right? Policy, finance, and technology. And even today, when you look at the industry, that's where we need to persist. We have to persist in better technologies, right? That are more efficient, that we can recycle, that could be more sustainable, right? We then have to look at more financing. There's constantly financing that's being developed, the structuring of financing of projects, right? That's being more and more innovative. So we have to be more innovative in how we finance these projects. And last but not least, it is about policy. I was really excited about the, the IRA, the IRA. I was happy mm-hmm. with the passage of it. The only thing we didn't get done, though, was the transmission ITC, right? That would have been the kicker. So from a policy perspective and a regulatory perspective, how do we really incentivize transmission build out, right? So we have to be persistent on that. So that message, I think, continues. On the tolerance piece, right? Someone told me the other day, and this was an enlightening thing. It's a simple concept, but it really turned on the light bulb. It's easy to hire and work with people that think like you. It's harder (laughs) to work with people that don't think like you, right? And we obviously, as human beings, always go towards, okay, what's easiest? What gets us there faster? What's efficient? What's easiest? And sometimes the best results don't come from efficiency, right? The best results come from dedication and investment in something that might be harder. And so I think from an ED&I and workforce development perspective, yes, it's harder. You have to do an extra jump, an extra leap, right? To engage folks that are outside your sphere that are coming from certain backgrounds that are not of your own. But it's important to make that extra effort because at the end of the day, the result will be, I think, an industry that we all are proud of, an industry that we see ourselves in. And and that's the biggest thing. You need to produce an environment. And the renewable energy industry is responsible for this. And we need to be responsible and accountable for this. But we need to provide an industry that shows that vision and shows people at leadership levels, not only at beginning entry levels, but leadership levels that reflect the backgrounds of those people looking to get into this industry, right? If I'm coming to the renewables industry, do I see myself whatever that definition might be, reflected in the leadership of the industry, right? And so that's something where I think tolerance has to come in. We have to tolerate other ideas. We also, from a political perspective, we need to depoliticize renewable energy. We've gotten to the point where this is now ridiculous, where it's drawn on Republican-Democrat lines, and it really shouldn't be. Energy is the most should be the most apolitical thing. We all need energy, whether we like it or not, no matter what our political stripes are. And there are a lot of common themes. Listen, the word conserve isn't conservative. And conservatives will always talk about how to conserve and be good environmental stewards, right, to the planet that's been created. And so we need to be able to, I think, better communicate and make those allegiances and ties between both sides to really talk about renewables from a power generation perspective, take out the emotions and really focus on what the task we have ahead, which is a big one. Absolutely. And I liked your initial message there against for renewables against nothing, because I think that's where we do start to get divided. Uh, i I talk to a lot of people about if you just focused on one side of the aisle, if you just listen to Democrats, if you just listen to Republicans, you would think that what divide us is this giant chasm that we can't overcome. But when you actually start to talk about what people believe and what they want, it's we're a lot closer aligned than we are apart. Unfortunately, politicians have done a poor job of bringing us together in that sense where if you talk to Republicans about the environment, to a Republican, they will say that they want to protect the waters, they want to protect the lands that they hunt, whatever their reasons are. And then that's the same thing that the renewables industry is trying to do. And then if you talk to Democrats and say, hey, do you think we should have abundant energy for everyone? Absolutely. That's a key to support more people and bring more people out of poverty. But somehow it's become so divisive. And so I really like that initial message. And I also like your point. It is harder to listen to opposing views. Cognitively, it's difficult for us to hold two different beliefs at the same time. That cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. is tough for a lot of people to deal with. But when you can get to that point and you can listen, we ultimately end up in a better spot. I tell everyone, if Republicans and Democrats, if both of them are unhappy, 
the country is a lot better off. If we let one party take and go in one crazy direction, it's not actually good. Like the two party system works well when we compromise because no one gets exactly what they want, but we end up closer to this idealistic society that we all agree on. A hundred percent. And I think at the end of the day, it comes back to servant leadership, which is one of the traits I mentioned in my book. And actually that chapter was dedicated to the first DOE commercialization team, which many people forget was actually under George W. Bush. And it's made up of Republicans who actually believed in renewables and taking all this technology that was on the shelves of the National Renewable Energy Laboratories, the National Laboratories, and getting them commercialized, getting them out to market, figuring out how do we finance them and how do we get them to scale. And we forget that there are people on both sides who believe in renewables. And that's I think we need to focus on that versus what divides us. Focus on the people, the coalition of the willing, which is another phrase that comes up over and over in the book. It was just uncanny when I was talking to these executives, right? There were phrases that was constantly coming up. Coalition of the willing was another one. But I would say that sense of servant leadership is what we all, and not only our politicians, but this is also a message for all of us. We all need to be servant leaders in our daily workplaces. And I think at the end of the day, we have to understand that we're serving a better cause here than just profitability or the next megawatt. We're actually making an impact here that's going to be reverberating for decades to come. So I think that trait, which was that chapter on the DOE commercialization team, really spoke out to me a lot. Absolutely. We're going to have to have you on again because I want to talk more about this and I want to talk about the importance of mentorship. Mm-hmm.